the outside linebacker room, everybody decided that they can bring their girlfriends or wives or whatever. So a dinner that was supposed to be for eight people automatically turned into 16. And then there was one other rookie with me that was a free, um, undrafted free agent. And he was, I was supposed to take care of like 5,000 of it. He was supposed to take care of 4,000, but his credit card got declined. And, um, you know, so I ended up having to cover the whole thing and he promised me that he would pay me back. And the dude ghosted me and never heard, never heard from him again. You're listening to For the Athlete, a podcast aimed at humanizing the athlete by giving them a platform to control their own narrative and tell their life stories. As always, here's your host, Brooks Huber. Well, welcome to For the Athlete. I'm your host, Brooks Huber, joined by this week's guest athlete, Devon Kennard. Thanks for hopping on the show. Thanks for having me, man. Devon, you're a 10-year NFL vet, a published author, and an investor. But before all this, you played college football at USC. And in doing so, you managed to get a bachelor's degree and a master's degree before stepping on an NFL field. Why was prioritizing academics and getting these degrees so important to you when roughly 60% of NFL players don't have one, let alone two? Uh, I think getting my education, having the opportunity, you know, coming out of high school, I'm, I'm a local kid in Arizona, went to Desert Vista, and, and um, you know, I was one of the top recruits in the nation coming out, so I had opportunity to go anywhere in the country, and a big thing for me was like, all right, I chose USC, and I had an opportunity to go to a school that was uh, costing sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year to go to, and I was able to go for free. So I was like, man, let me take advantage of that and get as much school done as possible, knock it out. My mindset was like, I never wanted to have to go back and I wanted to get as much free education as I could while I was there. So that was the perspective I had. It was really kind of as simple as that. Some people are like, oh, you must have loved school. And for me, it was kind of the, the opposite. It's like, I have to be here for to play ball anyways. Might as well knock out as much as I can. So I never have to go back and I'm in no uh, student loan debt. So I kind of had the foresight even out of high school was like I saw the advantage I had with being able to get a good education for free. And I was like, let me use the university as much as they're using me for my abilities and, and take advantage of the free education. There we go. It's good to see another Desert Vista alum here. I didn't graduate from Desert Vista, but I went there for two years. But yeah, that's some great points right there. You know, 70 grand to go to USC and then you got not one, but two degrees. That's incredible. So congratulations on that. What do you think about USC's football team this year? You think they got a shot to make the playoffs? Because this is the best that they've been in a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I was disappointed with how the year finished. You know, we went from probably going to the, to the playoffs and then we lost to Utah and then we play Tulane in the bowl game and lose to lose to them as well. So that was disappointing to see, but they kind of pick, uh, picked up on a on a good foot this year. Obviously, Caleb Williams winning the Heisman last year, and, and the player he's been so far this year. I'm super excited. They got some big games coming up that I plan on going to. They'll be out here soon playing against ASU, and then I'm I'm looking forward to that Colorado SC game against Dion and those boys, and then. And then uh, I'll be going out to L.A. for the USC-UCLA game. So uh, I'm, I'm excited being an alumni. You know, this is what you always dreamed of, having your university kind of really playing well and, and playing in meaningful games. And I think they have a shot. I think they got to clean some things up defensively. Um, when you start to play better teams, you know, you can't depend solely on, on turnovers. You're going to have to stop the run and, and really get some stops. 
So, um, you know, I'd like to see that improved a little bit, but I'm, I'm optimistic about what, what we can accomplish for sure. Yeah, as an ASU student, I'm really excited for that USC game. Not that, you know, Arizona State's going to have a shot. Yeah, it's over for but, you guys. I'm sorry. No, it, it totally is. totally is. Like, I'm there to watch Caleb Williams. <laughs> I watched him last year when they played Notre Dame at the Coliseum. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm not seeing a ASU win there, but maybe they can upset. So, after college, you were drafted in the fifth round by the Giants in 2014. You don't see too many fifth rounders getting real playing time, let alone playing 10 seasons like you did. How were you able to overcome the odds, making such a long career for yourself? And what did you see in yourself that maybe some scouts didn't? Um, you know, what What I thought was like my detriment ended up being an advantage. And I would say when I was at USC, I faced a lot of injuries and I was asked to move positions a lot. I, um, like I said, I was a top recruit coming out of high school and I got to USC, Coach Carroll left, Kiffin came, and they asked me to play middle linebacker, and I was a defensive end slash outside linebacker, and I played middle linebacker, outside backer, um, defensive end. They, like, I switched positions every year of college and played a different role, and I, I was frustrated while I was at USC because of that, but what it did for me once I got into the league is I had a much better understanding of the game of football altogether, how defenses work. So I was able to go in and play a lot of different roles, a lot of different spots. And I, I picked up the defense very fast. I played under different coordinators in, in college. So I was able to understand concepts and get the job done at a high level. And, you know, once you're in the NFL, I would say everybody is talented, but you know, you earn the coach's trust when you're not making a lot of mistakes. And for me to be a rookie and right off the bat, you know, I, I'll make a mistake here, but I would never make it again. And I kind of I kind of made a, a whole career off out of being a guy who was going to be where I was supposed to be, was going to play hard and play with high intensity, but I wasn't going to make a ton of mistakes. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I was ever the fastest, biggest, strongest guy Um you know, throughout my career, especially professionally, but it was the intangibles that really put me in a position to to be successful as long as I was to make the kind of contracts I did and, the, and uh, you know, be in the position I was even as a fifth rounder. Yeah, you mentioned how playing all those different positions helped you in the NFL. Uh, you, were a, you were a great vet for 10 years. When getting cut or signing with a different team in free agency, what conversations are you having internally and externally with the people in your circle? It was it was weird. You know, you start to learn about the business of of the NFL. You know, I was drafted to the New York Giants and I outplayed my rookie contract as a fifth round draft pick. I started most of my career in in New York and I thought I was going to get an uh, an extension, but a new GM came, new coach came and uh you know, they decided to offer another player um, a contract that they should have offered me. So that was disappointing because I, you know, even though I'm a West Coast guy, I fell in love with the Giants organization and everything it was about. And I was hoping to be there the rest of my career. And, and uh, you know, I ended up leaving after my my rookie deal. But is is a blessing in that. Go to Detroit. I get a, I get a nice contract and, and play some of my best ball in Detroit. But um, got kind of caught off guard and surprised again. You know, I was in com conversations with Detroit on getting a contract extension um, because I was outplaying my contract there. And, uh, you know, free agency hit. They decided to sign a couple of other players at other positions, and they felt like they weren't going to be able to pay me. And they, they decided to surprise cut me. And, uh, you know, that was another, you know, kind of humbling experience. Like I'm coming off two of my best years and got, and got released. 
But, uh, you know, it all worked out for a reason. I ended up getting another really nice contract to come home and play. So, uh, you know, it, it kind of humbled me, you know, having the experience I have being being cut um, by, the, by the Lions, not being re-signed by the Giants. And then even, uh, you know, last year being cut in the middle of the season uh, by the Cardinals. Uh, it, it's a humbling experience, but you got to kind of take it with stride. That's a part of the NFL. And if you play in it long enough, you know, you're going to face some adversity like that. So out of all the organizations you played for, you played for Baltimore, the Giants, the Cardinals, and the Lions, what had, which one was your favorite? Um, I would say overall, the Giants was definitely my favorite organization. Uh, biased because they're the ones that drafted me, but you can just tell they're a first-class organization from top to bottom. But within that, I will also speak on the Baltimore Ravens. I was only there for a short time, but how they run their organization from the top to bottom, the GM, the head coach, um, everyone in that building, I have an immense amount of respect for. I'll be a fan of the Baltimore Ravens probably, uh, you know, un until our less hardball leaves or the GM leaves and all of that because they do things the right way. Um, they build their organization the right way, and, and I got a ton of respect. But I just didn't spend enough time there to really say so, you know, I, for me, I got to go with the Giants. Okay, that's fair. Do you still want to play this year? Because, you know, you have your book that came out in April that we will touch on. You're big into real estate investing. Is that where your focus is on? Or do you still want to lace up the cleats at least one more time? No, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, open to an opportunity in the NFL, but it has to be the right situation. I've gotten some calls and none of them really piqued my interest enough to where I was going to take um, I'm, I'm kind of locked in on my family and building, building my real estate businesses and my real estate portfolio. Uh, I recognize as soon as I got in the NFL that even best case scenario is my career, you know, make a good amount of money playing in the NFL, nine, 10, 11, 12, you know, somewhere around there, but I'm 32 years old and, you know, got a lot of life ahead of me. And I kind of recognized that as soon as I got in the league, like even if I play 10 years and make a good amount of money. I need to figure out what to do with it and because I'm going to have a lot of life afterwards. And having that forethought as soon as I got into the league has put me in a position where I, I don't have to take any job that comes to me. And I'm talking in, in, the, in the NFL even. You know, I, if I get an opportunity and I get a call, I'm able to say, oh, that's not the right fit because I'm not pressed to just sign anywhere in any situation. But, you know, I handle things financially the right way to where it's like, all right, I get to play football and choose to, not because I have to. And I think that's, you know, the should be the goal of any player, um, especially aspiring to get into the NFL, is to have enough success to where you get to choose to play the game that you love and you don't feel like you have to just to make a earn to, just to make a living. Okay, so did you get into real estate in like from day one of your career, or at what point were you like, okay, this could be a a w extra way for me to make money, especially post career, because you know, NFL careers don't tend to last forever. Um, so I bought my first property right after my rookie season. And, uh, you know, a funny story is I drove my high school car my first year in the NFL. It was a Kia Sorento that my parents bought, brought, uh, bought me 2005 Kia Sorento. They bought it to me my sophomore year of high school and I took it to college and I took it to New York when I got drafted by the Giants. And then after my uh, rookie season, I um, worked out a deal with the Kia dealership and got a, a newer Kia Cadenza, but it was still a Kia. And I drove that the, the rest of my time in New York. So 
um, you know, my mindset was save as much as I can and start to figure out how to invest in it. So, um, so you know, I used I used as much money as I could to save up. I bought my first property, and uh, ever since then, I've just been buying properties, investing in different real estate deals, and learning as much as I can, and using my football knowledge and, and relationships and status to open doors for me off the field. And I think it's provided opportunities for me that you know maybe a lot of people wouldn't have, or like it expedited the process for me. I was able to get in rooms that. I, I wouldn't have been able to get into for years, but because I had some capital to invest from the NFL and I had the status of an NFL player, uh, doors opened for me that, that streamlined and made the process easier. So you're big on financial education. What are some of your three biggest tips to get people who haven't invested in real estate or are just getting started doing it? Um, somebody just getting started in the financial literacy and education, I would say Get a real grip on how much you spend every month and how much you ideally like what does your ideal life look like and what does that spend every month? So maybe you come to the conclusion that after all your bills, you know, your rents, everything, you spend five thousand dollars a month and that's what you need to sustain your life. And, but ideally, you would want to spend eight thousand dollars a month like, all right, now you got to start to reverse engineer. What kind of job do you need to get? What kind of raises can you start to ask for? What kind of investments? Like so many people don't even know where they actually stand with how much they spend and what their life costs. So I think that's round number one is like figuring out and I call that your target monthly income. Like know what your target monthly income is and you can kind of get that number pretty easily by looking at all of 2022, calculate and, and look at your bank statement, see everything that you spent. Divide it by 12, and that tells you what, what you spend on average every month, and that kind of allows you to reverse engineer, like, okay, I make this much a month in, in my job. How can I supplement that with other income? How can I gain another skill so I can earn some more money? Like, and uh, start to figure it out and piece together so you can have the life that you really want. But I think some people are so afraid of financial literacy that they never even take the time to really see where they're at. So I'd say that that would be the first step. And step two would actually be, um, okay, now you know, know what you spend. How do you increase your spending, uh, your earning potential and decrease your expenses? And um, I talk a lot about fixed expenses versus variable expenses. And fixed expenses just means like, a lot of people are spending way too much on their rent or mortgage, way too much on their car payment. You know, they want to go and buy the new uh, new car, the new charger, the new, you know, whatever, and keep those expenses down because those are the things that charge you every freaking month, month after month. A lot of people talk about cutting like Netflix and it's like, that could help, but that's what, $12 a month? Like, is it really going to make that much of a difference? As opposed to like, hey, go find the apartment that charges you $1,500 a month instead of $2,000 a month. $500 a month times 12, you know, now we're talking real money. So, um, you know, I think those first two steps of like of identifying your TMI and then identifying and trying to increase how much you earn and decreasing how much you spend. That's the first steps to really kind of getting your financial life in order. Okay, so what I'm hearing is... You want to cut down spending, and then once you do, you got to like find out how much money you're willing to spend. Okay, see, I'm glad this is on recording because I'm going to go back to this. I'm going to write all this stuff down. This is great free knowledge. Thank you so much for sharing this <laughs> on the show. It's going to help out a lot of people. And, you know, invest in a Kia. 
like you said, Kias are you have a Kia? Kias are great cars, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I drove a Kia my first four years in the NFL. <laughs> hey, there we go. Uh, before we talk about your book coming up, I do want to talk about um, your philanthropy because that's a big thing I like to touch on on these shows is giving back to communities. In 2019, you were nominated for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award for your work with after-school programs in both New Jersey and Detroit. What does it mean to you to give back to your communities that you've been a part of, and what's your why behind it? Um, man, I, I feel like kids are the next generation, and being an, being an athlete myself, I understand how many kids look up to us as NFL players and I want to have a positive impact. And I feel like my message and delivery can be a little different than even some players because my my passion is financial literacy. So it's like, you know, I can go to underserved com- um, communities and talk about finances, how many players are actually doing that. And making that, you know, a mainstay and a common natural conversation instead of something that seems so far outreach that a lot of kids, especially in underserved communities are, aren't talking about. So I, I kind of found that niche and found organizations that would allow me to do that and I could work with and that were already doing work in that direction. And, uh, you know, that's what I've hung my my hat on my whole career. And it was New City Kids when I was in, in um, New York and it was uh, Midnight Golf when I was in Detroit. And then when I came to Arizona, there's a, a nonprofit organization I work with called ICANN based out of Chandler, and they all work with after school programs and kids and, and teaching and helping make their lives better. And, um, you know, I think that's a passion point of mine. Yeah, like you mentioned, you don't see very many athletes talking about financial literacy. There's you and then there's I've heard Des Bryant doing a little bit of it, too. Right. That's such a big deal. And that mm-hmm. for some reason, nobody talks about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think so many people talk about like our physical, mental, emo- emotional well-being, but not a lot. Of, a lot of people talk about our, uh, you know, financial well-being and how that impacts um, the rest of our lives. So, um, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of a niche that that makes a lot of sense to me, and I'm passionate about. That's awesome. That you're passionate about it. I wish more people were as passionate about it as you. And I feel like that'll start trending more and more because you see how. Now the rookie dinners are kind of going under the under the microscope now, saying, "Hey, why are these rookies paying for thirty thousand dollar dinners when they don't make that much money to begin with?" And I love how you're stepping up. A bunch of other people are stepping up, saying, "Hey, this is yeah. not financially responsible." Yeah, I, I got a, I got a funny rookie dinner story. I um, I I had to cover a freaking nine thousand um, dollar uh, bill myself, and I got screwed over because the outside linebacker room, everybody decided that they can bring their girlfriends or wives or whatever. So a dinner that was supposed to be for eight people automatically turned into 16. And then there was one other rookie with me that was a free, um, an un, un, um, undrafted free agent. And he was, I was supposed to take care of like 5,000 of it. He was supposed to take care of 4,000, but his credit card got declined. And, um, you know, so I ended up having to cover the whole thing and he promised me that he would pay me back and the dude ghosted me and never heard, never heard from him again. Cause our, our rookie dinner was at the end of the year. So I had to, I had to foot that whole bill and I, I always say, if I ever run into, uh, if I ever run into him again, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, try to get my money back. Cause he, he owes me $4,000 to this day. Yeah, I would too. Was he, so he was an undrafted guy. Did he still play in the NFL after that year or 
Is he still in the league currently? Like, how no, far I back does this go? I think he ended up out out of the league. No, I think he ended up out of the league after after that year. So, um, yeah, you know, but but still, your word is your bonds, and he was supposed to take me back. So it was, it was it's just one of those things. You know, it's water under the bridge now. But for for a while there, I remember that whole off season. I was pissed. I mean, I would be too if I were you. I mean, hindsight, you made a great career out of yourself, out of football and in football. So. And the grand scope of things doesn't matter too much, but no, that would have made me upset as well. <laughs> uh, so for our, one of the last questions here, we're going to talk about your book. So you're an author, which I think that's incredible. I've tried to you know, talk around this topic for the entire time, saving it for the end. But here we are. You published your first book in April called It All Adds Up, which is a financial self-help book. What was your inspiration behind writing it and why come out with it now? I think it was it's uh revolved around the same stuff we've been talking about um you know all um all day today and essentially being a professional athlete and being able to let people uh behind the lens or behind the curtains of what it looks like to be an NFL athlete but also incorporating a lot of financial literacy tips that I feel like can can relate to other athletes and aspiring athletes, but also to everyday people. So, you know, there's there's not many people writing finances, uh, finance books that, you know, are African-American and athletes. So, you know, I felt like I had a, a certain outreach that I can get get and I might be able to connect with more people, you know, like a lot. I, I personally read a lot of finance books, but to be honest, they're older white guys writing the books, you know, white guys in their fifties or sixties telling you what to do with your money. And, and it's great information, but I feel like I, I can kind of uh, process that information. And then I got real life examples of how I've incorporated it into my life. And then I want to share it with, with uh, the community and the people that I feel like I can reach and touch. And, and I've gotten great feedback from the book so far. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it's helped change and impact a lot of lives. You mentioned in the description of your book that you don't want to become another statistic. The one you're referring to, I'm assuming, is that how 78% of athletes go broke three years after retiring. Why do you think this happens and how can athletes prevent that? I assume you also touch on it in your book as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not hard on why or how athletes go broke people think they make way more oh, they make way more money than they do even the big contracts that you see a guy signs for 10 million dollars on a 2 year deal and this is a breakdown i have in my book but 10 million dollars on a on a 2 year deal can quickly turn into a 1 year deal for 3 million dollars that's actually in his pocket and people don't understand that but when you factor in taxes you factor in that contracts aren't guaranteed so, you know, um, you know, you factor in lawyer, lawyer fees and our agent fees and, you know, all the things that come with it. I'm not saying that three million dollars isn't a lot of money, but it's not ten million dollars. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, so I think that's the barrier for entry first is realizing that, like, the amount of money that you see come across SportsCenter is not what actually hits these players pockets when it's all said and done. And then from there. It's the increased life expenses, and and you're talking about young young people who have dedicated their life to the game of football, not being financial wizards and knowing what to do with their money, how to invest, all these things. So you know they get preyed on by financial advisors, and then you have family friends who who think they're making ten million dollars when they're really making three. So they're having they're asking for new houses, new cars, 
Um, and all of a sudden, you start to have all these different expenses that just pile up. And let's say your career ends faster than you thought. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow, I don't have any more money coming in, but I have all these big expenses. So I think it's it, it creates the recipe for disaster. And, it, and when you really start to break it all down, I feel like it it's obvious why it's easy for a 20-year-old who is making a couple million dollars to go broke when most of the money that they're going to earn is in a short amount of time and that has to sustain them for the rest of their lives. So, um, you know, I talk a lot about that in my book on how to put it in perspective and then how it relates to day, um, to everyday people and how that, how it can translate in the mindset that you need to have about money. So how come coaches or vets don't try preaching this to the younger guys more? Cause you see all these big contracts come across the screen on ESPN. Like you said, Joe Burrow, 275 million. But like you mentioned, not all of it's going into his pocket. Yeah. I mean, and and you see a Joe Burrow contract and you think everybody's getting paid like that. Like, you know, the the average player on our roster is making one to two million dollars. But all that you see on, you know, that's highlighted is Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, so and their contracts are big, but you forget that there's you know, 53 guys on the roster and maybe 10 guys are making crazy money and the rest are, you know, making millions probably, but like millions, if you make one or $2 million a year for five years and after taxes and after everything, you've accumulated 5 million, but you have no work experience outside of the NFL and $5 million has to sustain you for the next 60 years. Like, Come on, start to do the math. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the math ain't math and your money's going to run out. And I think it's becoming more talked about within NFL locker rooms and, and things like that. But um, at the end of the day, the NFL coaches and all that, their main objective is to win games. So obviously, the, like their main priority isn't to make sure guys don't go broke. That, that has to be the player's responsibility. So I think that's why it's not super mainstreamed, and I don't know if it ever really will be. Yeah, that's some fair points. I really hope it is one day mainstream because you see all these sad stories about these athletes who made a ton of money in their career, and now they're filing for bankruptcy, which is just something you don't want to see ever. That's all the questions I have for you today. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on to the show, and congratulations on your book. And I, I look forward to talking to you soon. Let's keep in touch. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. I'm your host, Brooks Huber, and you just listened to the Devon Kennard episode on For the Athlete. Thanks for listening to For the Athlete. As always, be on the lookout for another athlete appearance next week. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and wherever you listen to podcasts.